Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome to Behind the Knife Medical Student and Intern Survival Guide. In this podcast series, we focus on topics relevant to medical students and surgical interns. My name is Patrick Georgioff. And I'm Vahag Nikolian. And we are your hosts. All right, today we have another high-yield topic applicable to all students and residents, acute gastrointestinal hemorrhage. That's right. Today we're covering GI bleed. This topic is important for those interested in surgery, but is also applicable to those going into emergency medicine and internal medicine. That's because the management of these patients often requires a multidisciplinary approach. Absolutely. So let's get started with some basics. GI bleeds are often categorized as either an upper or lower GI bleed, depending on the location of the bleeding. Bleeds that originate from the foregut, meaning proximal to the ligament of trites, are classified as upper GI bleeds. About 80% of GI bleeds are found to be upper GI in nature. Distal to the ligament of trites, GI bleeds are considered to be lower GI. Most of these bleeds will be from the colon. Only a small percentage of bleeds originate actually from the small bowel. That's right. When men thinking about GI bleeds, it's important to maintain a broad differential diagnosis. For upper GI bleeds, the most common entities include duodenal ulcers, gastric ulcers, esophagitis, varices, and gastritis. For lower GI bleeds, diverticulosis, colitis, neoplasms, angiodysplasia, and rectal lesions are the most common causes. Exactly. So it's really important to think broadly about what, you, what may be causing a GI bleed. That said, management principles, especially on initial presentation, are relatively consistent and essential to successful management of these patients. All right. With that said, let's go ahead and work our way through a few cases and try to highlight critical components of the management of patients who present with a GI bleed. Sounds good. So Patrick, you're the resident in the ED and you go to evaluate a 45-year-old man who's presenting with lightheadedness and concerns for a GI bleed. He states that for the past few days, he's been passing black stool and felt fatigued. Recently, he doubled the amount of Motrin he's been taking for a chronic epigastric pain without significant relief in the burning. He smokes two packs of cigarettes a day and occasionally drinks some alcohol. All right. Um, I would uh, move forward with a physical exam, including uh, orthostatic uh, blood pressures. All right. So on physical exam, his blood pressure is 120 over 80 and a heart rate of 110 while he's in the supine position. Upon standing up, the patient feels dizzy and has a blood pressure of 90 over 60 with a weak pulse. On abdominal examination, the patient has moderate tenderness in the epigastrum. You're unable to palpate any hepatosplenomegaly. On rectal examination, he has black tarry stool. Okay, I would move forward with a full set of labs, including a CBC, a comprehensive metabolic panel, PT and PTT, and a type and screen. And I think that given the hypotension, I'd probably get an EKG uh, uh, as well. Okay, so your labs were already sent, and they returned with a hemoglobin of 9, down from a baseline of 14 about two months ago, a white count of 13, normal coags, and a B1 creatinine of 45 and 1.2 respectively. 
your EKG demonstrates sinus tachycardia. What would you like to do next? Right. So this patient is presenting with hypotension, melana, and anemia. Um, I would definitely uh, think about a GI bleed until proven otherwise. Now, the melana suggests that this bleeding is coming from a foregut source. Um, it's important to recognize that the exact diagnosis or etiology of the GI bleed, uh, at least at this point, is not as important as a, initially a, a starting resuscitation. That's the first thing I want to do. In the ED, I'd make sure that we establish uh, IVs, um, at least two large bore uh, 16 or 18 gauge IVs. I want to initiate fluid resuscitation. I'll start with crystalloid. Uh, and I would type and cross the patient uh, for blood products. Um, and uh, in addition to this, uh, place a nasal gas or tube. Okay. So, Patrick, your fluid bolus is hung. You mentioned an NG tube. The patient isn't throwing up or nauseated, so why do you want to place an NG tube in this patient? Yeah, so in this case, an NG tube is a diagnostic tool. Uh, we can interpret or kind of learn more about the, the location of a GI bleed uh, by looking at the aspirate from the tube itself. Okay, so that's exactly right. So NG outputs can tell us about the type of bleed we may be dealing with. For instance, a patient who has coffee ground appearing aspirates uh, may have a slow bleed or ooze, whereas a patient who has bright red blood or clots are more indicative of an active upper GI bleed. If the NG aspirate is bile stain, then an upper GI source is less likely. In this patient, you place the NG tube and have clear return. How does this impact your diagnosis? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting finding. But as mentioned, uh, this patient has melanin and has symptomatic anemia. Now, the uh, NG tube aspirate does not rule in an upper GI bleed, but it also doesn't rule it out. Um, uh, NG tubes can be helpful and at times not as much. So um, uh, a clear NG tube output can be explained by a variety of factors. The patient may have a competent gastric pylorus. Uh, meaning that they're maybe bleeding in the foregut that we're unable to identify with our NG2, which is located in the stomach. Also, GI bleeding is often uh, intermittent, and it can stop spontaneously. I think we should still uh, continue to uh, uh, resuscitate this patient, but also uh, work towards identifying the cause of bleeding. Okay, so the patient gets 2 liters of crystalloid, and his blood pressure and heart rate respond appropriately. Repeat labs are drawn, and he's now found to have a hemoglobin of 6.5. You give a blood transfusion, and he's currently stable and has been started on an IV PPI. So what's the next element of your workup? Yeah, so now it's time to perform a localizing study. For this patient, I would uh, do an upper uh, GI, uh, so an upper GI endoscopy. This would serve as a diagnostic uh, and a therapeutic intervention. Um, it can help to identify active bleeding or visible vessels, and from a therapeutic standpoint, we can endoscopically inject vasoconstrictors or sclerosins. Uh, you can use electrocautery as well through the endoscopy and clip bleeding vessels. Uh, it would also help us to rule out other sources of bleeding such as varices. Now, when performing an EGD for GI bleeds, we can also take biopsies, uh, which uh, can help us to determine whether H. pylori is present. Uh, which is a huge uh, cause of ulcers, uh, or whether uh, ulcerations uh, could actually be cancer. Okay. So endoscopy is essential for management of patients with GI bleed. What you find on endoscopy can actually help predict the risk of uh, also developing a recurrent bleed. 
So diagnostic criteria have been described, which help categorize bleed, bleeding areas seen on endoscopy. For instance, a small area that's red over an ulcer base is far less prone to bleeding than an oozing ulcer with a clot at its base. If you find a visible vessel with active bleeding, the risk of re-bleeding is even higher. Okay. Uh, and so what do we find on upper endoscopy? So the endoscopy is performed and there's a minimal amount of blood in the stomach. You find an ulcer in the posterior wall of the proximal duodenum with some oozing and an overlying clot. You find no other ulcers in the stomach and no evidence of a bleeding source within the esophagus. The site is injected with epinephrine and there's no further bleeding noted. Biopsies of the stomach are performed to evaluate for H. pylori. The patient returns to the ICU. So what do you want to do next? Okay. So it sounds like this patient is stable uh, but has a ulcer in the duodenum. Um, I would uh, wait the biopsy results and in the meantime initiate medical treatment for H. pylori. Um, a common treatment regimen uh, consists of a PPI, amoxicillin, and clarithromycin. Uh, this regimen is often referred to as triple therapy and is administered for 14 days. Um, it's it's uh, very effective, too, and uh, over 90% of patients who receive this treatment regimen um, clear their H. pylori infection. Great job, Pat. So let's say your patient goes back to the ICU. He's monitored. You initiate the triple therapy, and the next day the patient develops a recurrent bleed. What's going to be your next intervention? Yeah, so this is a question that uh, I like to ask medical students because oftentimes the answer is go to the OR. And that's actually wrong. So as uh, tempting as it may be uh, uh, to get down to cutting, uh, it's uh, not the answer. So re-bleeding is managed by repeat endoscopy. Right. So uh, that's right. So most often we'll manage a patient with a recurrent bleeding ulcer with another endoscopic intervention. Surgical management of peptic ulcers is limited to patients who have massive hemorrhage leading to shock or cardiovascular instability. Those with prolonged blood loss requiring continued transfusions. Patients who have failed medical and endoscopic treatment options. And patients who have had multiple hospitalizations for hemorrhage. In your patient, the biopsies come back negative for cancer and positive for H. pylori. Let's say he continues to bleed despite multiple endoscopic attempts. What operation do you anticipate performing for this duodenal ulcer? Right, so you... You described the different reasons to perform a surgery. This patient meets those criteria. We're now going to operate. Um, so in a patient with a, a duo ulcer that continues to bleed despite um, uh, multiple attempts of management, I would perform exploratory laparotomy. I would open the anterior uh, duodenum and suture ligate the exposed vessels at the base of the ulcer uh, in the posterior duo. Great. So for bonus points, let's say the ulcer was again benign, associated with H. pylori, but found to be in the distal stomach. How would you surgically manage a patient who failed medical therapy then? Okay, so for a uh, ulcer in the distal stomach, a benign gastric ulcer, the elective operation of choice is a distal gastrectomy. And you can hook the patient back up uh, uh, to the duo, which is a Bill Roth 1 procedure, or uh, uh, to the dejunum, which is the Bill Roth 2 procedure. So if you're unfamiliar with these surgeries, I'd recommend you look them up uh, and, and take a look at the anatomy. Um, these operations are not done too frequently anymore for, for ulcer disease um, due to the availability of PPIs and to the uh, uh, aggressive treatment of H. pylori. 
Um, but they are still required for refractory disease or gastric outlet obstruction, secondary ulcers. So it's good to know uh, what they are and how to do them. Absolutely. So nice review there, Patrick. Uh, the management of upper GI bleed was has sort of been revolutionized by our understanding of H. pylori. That said, many patients will still present with upper GI bleed, so it's important to remember the principles of management. Remember that many of these patients will have bleeds that resolve on their own. Endoscopy is a therapeutic and diagnostic tool that should be utilized early in patients with upper GI bleeds. And operative management is reserved for those patients who fail endoscopic and medical treatment. All right. That's a good case, V. All right, let's move on. Another one. Okay, so you're the resident in the ED, and this time a 65-year-old woman is presenting with lightheadedness and concerns for a GI bleed. She states that for the past few weeks, she's been having more episodes of blood per rectum. She has been managed by her PCP, who believes it's related to some hemorrhoids. She was diagnosed a few years ago. Over the last month, she feels that the episodes of bleeding have gotten worse, and she feels more tired than usual. Yeah. So everything you talked about there, uh, the hemorrhoids, kind of prolonged presentation, now feeling more tired than usual... Uh, vague kind of episodes of bleeding. This, this is a really relatively common story. Um, and patients who uh, present to the ED with GI bleeds often cite hemorrhoids as, as the cause. I mean, hemorrhoids are very common after all. So while this may be true, it is important to evaluate the patient for other sources of GI bleeding. You don't want to be tricked. Uh, so for this patient, I would again start with a quick assessment of her vital signs and make sure she is stable, resuscitate as needed. I would then take a detailed history, including her recent bo- learning more about her recent bowel habits. Um, I would ask about her past medical history and focus on uh, a personal and family history of cancer, of inflammatory bowel disease, and also whether she's had any episodes of GI bleeding prior to this. Um, in regards to her surgical history, I'd like to know if she has ever had any abdominal operations and, very, very importantly, is when was her last colonoscopy if she's had one. And I'd also check to see if the patient is on blood thinners. All right, so she's hemodynamically stable right now with a heart rate of 90 and a blood pressure of 145 over 85. She tells you that she's been relatively in good health throughout her life. She sees her doctor infrequently and has a history of diabetes, hypertension, and hyperlipidemia. She mentions that she feels more bloated than usual and has recently started on a uh, bowel regimen that includes laxatives and stool softeners. She finds that these uh, have helped her a bit, especially since the bleeding episodes are worse when she has a formed bowel movement. She denies ever having a colonoscopy, in spite of her PCP recommending it to her years ago. She currently denies any hematemesis, nausea, or vomiting. She also notes a 10-pound weight loss over the last two months, uh, but she's unsure if this is related to diet changes or uh, if it's unintentional. Okay. Well, uh, what about exam, physical exam? So her vital signs, again, are similar to before and stable. She has pale conjunctiva, a normal cardiopulmonary exam. Her abdomen is soft, non-tender, and she has evidence of a previous open cholecystectomy. Her, on digital rectal exam, uh, you find a normal rectal tone, but there is stool, or, I'm sorry, stool is positive for occult bleeding. Anoscopy identifies a small internal hemorrhoid that isn't bleeding right now. Uh, what would you like to do in terms of laboratories or diagnostic tests? Yeah, let's start with the standard panel of labs, including a CBC, uh, comprehensive metabolic panel, and coags. And I'd also like to send a type and screen. 
All right, so your CBC comes back with a microcytic anemia and a hemoglobin of 9.5. Uh, all other laboratories are normal. All right, so um, this patient has had a recent change in her bowel habits. Uh, she has a cold blood in her stools, and she's anemic. Uh, these findings are consistent with a chronic uh, 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 GI bleed. And the differential, at least from a, a lower GI standpoint, includes cancer, uh, inflammatory bowel disease, and chronic diverticulosis. All right, so that's right. Um, in this patient, we have multiple factors, including changes in bowel habits, occult positive uh, stools, as well as microcytic anemia and weight loss, which suggest a cancer diagnosis at this time. Yeah, that's certainly uh, what I'm worried about here. So uh, the first and foremost, I would go ahead and obtain a colonoscopy. All right, sounds good. So you move forward with a colonoscopy, and you find a large mass in the descending colon with biopsies consistent with the adenocarcinoma. The remaining colonoscopy identifies no other masses. You stage the patient's colon cancer with cross-sectional imaging and find no signs of metastases. And so given these findings, you then plan to perform an elective uh, colectomy. Okay, so uh, we've now dealt with an active upper GI bleed and an occult lower GI bleed. And uh, active lower GI, lower, GI, lower GI bleeds, excuse me, are also important to recognize. And patients, patients with lower GI bleeds will often present with passage of maroon or bright uh, red blood per rectum. All right, so that's right. So in, in our last case, the patient had mild occult bleeding. In these patients, the yield of a colonoscopy is quite high. That's why we ordered it. That's how we were able to identify the mass and then diagnose her with cancer. Uh, following a bowel prep, you can often identify these uh, lesions. Unfortunately, in patients who are actively bleeding and have an unprepped colon, the diagnostic yield of colonoscopy is very low. In these patients, it's oftentimes better to move forward with other localizing studies, such as a tagged RBC scan or CT angiography. When ordering these, it's important to know that CT angiograms can provide nice localization but the bleed has to be pretty brisk. In contrast, a tagged RBC scan is more sensitive in detecting a bleed, but is not as accurate for localization. So it's important to remember that in patients who present with lower GI bleeding, the most common cause is mucosal bleeding. Uh, for that reason, you cannot see the bleeding from the outside of the lumen. Uh, so if you don't know where the bleeding is coming from, uh, taking the patient to the OR for exploration is not a good idea. You simply don't know where the bleeding's at. So uh, don't fall prey to this question on, on your exams uh, uh, or uh, uh, in any clinical scenarios. Absolutely. So, Patrick, let's say you localize a bleed to the colon. What are common benign causes of colonic bleeding? Yeah, so good question. As we mentioned before, diverticulosis, angiodysplasia, and colitis are the most common causes for bleeding. If you are able to localize the bleeding, uh, interventional radiologists uh, can often embolize uh, these, uh, these masses or these bleeding areas. Uh, if bleeding is not controlled, moving forward with a segmental uh, resection of the colon uh, is appropriate. And in very rare instances, patients continue to bleed and localizing studies such as angiography and tag scans fail to identify a location. In these patients, alternatives such as double balloon endoscopy and capsule endoscopy can be used to find uh, uh, what is oftentimes a small bowel uh, source. Alrighty. So, uh, Pat, why don't we go ahead and uh, wrap it up with another rapid-fire review? Do it, baby. All right. So, question number one. What are the most common causes of upper and lower GI bleeding in adults? 
Yeah, peptic ulcer disease for upper GI bleeds and colonic diverticulosis for lower GI bleeds. Okay. Uh, question two. What bedside test can be performed to differentiate an upper GI bleed from a lower GI bleed? So you can use nasogastric aspirin. So bilious aspirin is more consistent with a lower GI bleed. Okay. Following endoscopic sclerotherapy, a patient has a recurrent upper GI bleed. While resuscitating the patient, what should the next step in therapy be for that patient? Yeah, uh, repeat upper endoscopy. Okay. In patients presenting with a massive lower GI bleed, what are common localizing studies used to guide IR embolization or surgical resection? That would be tagged red blood cell scans or a CT angiography. All right. And finally, for patients with lower GI bleeds and studies showing bleeding from the colon, what operation should be performed? Yeah, that'd be a segmental resection of the uh, bleeding part of the colon. Awesome. All right, so nice work. Well, that wraps up another one of our reviews. Please let us know what other con- uh, content you'd like us to cover for future podcasts. Awesome. Thanks. And as always, don't forget, dominate the day. Until next time, dominate the day.